We discovered that there were secrets that your body was trying to tell you that could really help you optimize performance. But no one could monitor those things. And that's when we set out to build the technology that we thought could really change the world. Welcome to the Whoop Podcast. I'm your host, Will Ahmed, founder and CEO of Whoop, where we are on a mission to unlock human performance. At Whoop, we measure the body 24-7 and provide analytics to our members to help improve performance. This includes strain, recovery, and sleep. Our clients range from the best professional athletes in the world to Navy SEALs to fitness enthusiasts to Fortune 500 CEOs and executives. The common thread among Whoop members is a passion to improve. What does it take to optimize performance for athletes, for humans, really anyone? We're launching a podcast to dig deeper. We'll interview experts and industry leaders across sports, data, technology, physiology, athletic achievement, you name it. When I founded Whoop, I didn't know exactly where it would take me, and hosting a podcast was certainly not one of the first things on my mind. In the process, though, I've gotten to interact with amazing athletes, advisors, investors, and had some really fascinating conversations. And that was a lot of the inspiration for starting this podcast. I think there's something about this format, this type of conversation, that really allows you to delve deeper. My hope is that you'll leave these conversations with some new ideas and a greater passion for performance. With that in mind, I welcome you to the WHOOP podcast. You never know who you're going to find in our lab. we got people in there doing paintings, making dresses, engineering meat, working on heart valves for children, working on brain injury, other kinds of pediatric diseases. You might see L'Oreal, Tory Burch, Adidas, Nike, um, Pfizer, Merck. You never know who's going to be in our lab. And the whole idea is we learn from all of them. My guest today is Kevin Kit Parker the Tarr Family Professor of Bioengineering and Applied Physics at Harvard, and a Lieutenant Colonel in the U.S. Army Reserve. Kit served multiple combat tours in Afghanistan, as well as two missions as part of the Gray Team investigating traumatic brain injuries. As an advisor to WHOOP since 2013, Kit was my co-founder, Aurelian Nikolai's professor at Harvard. Our conversation includes a variety of amazing topics related to human performance, including how to optimize your vacation, the science of counterinsurgency, how schools can help design to prevent school shootings, how your body handles being in a firefight, designing fashion that humans are neurologically wired to enjoy, founding a barbecue company, and dinner with Kanye West and Larry Page. I expected my conversation with Kit to be very entertaining. I really think he's one of the most creative people in the world, and I hope you enjoy. Kit, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So there's so many different things I want to talk about with you. Uh, Your involvement with Whoop, one, because you've been a great advisor to the company, and some of the different directions that we're taking the technology together and some of your advice there. 
But first, I really want to start with your career at Harvard and in the military. I mean, you've had a fascinating career to date. The Tar Family Professor of Bioengineering and Applied Physics at Harvard. I mean, that's a big title to carry. You actually taught... Maybe maybe bigger than my value to the university. (laughs) And you actually taught one of my co-founders, Aurelian Nikolai, while he was at Harvard, which is how he got introduced. Well, maybe as some background, just describe what kind of a class, the classes you teach at Harvard. And then I'll ask you about a couple of these projects because they're pretty fun. Well, I I, um, I teach a design class to junior level uh, engineers, and um, and this is undergrads at Harvard. Undergrads, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I try to develop some new ideas. I just spent the last year on sabbatical coming up with new ideas for this class, and so um, the idea is my my opinion is is that the students need to learn two things. First of all, they need to transition from being a student to being an engineer. These are junior level engineering students. And, and engineering design is very much done as a team sport, right? And so um, you have to teach a little bit of leadership, a little bit of teamwork, a little bit of followership when you're doing good design. But for me, I'm very interested in the whole idea of emotion in the creative and innovative process. And um, one of the things I started trying to do is bring into the classroom experiences that were uh, interesting to me and get young people interested in them, take them out of the typical understanding of how what engineering design is and move towards other kinds of problems so i can talk about those yeah let's do it so after my second tour in afghanistan i came back and i was a bit stunned that we had never developed any science behind the 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 idea of counterinsurgency so traditionally the way we the science behind the way we our traditional model of war is basically newtonian's mechanics you know kill things and break people break kill people and break things right (laughs) okay and um and move, do it as fast as possible because we have this westernized model of war as an acute condition. But we've been fighting for the last 17 years in a situation where war is a chronic condition and Newtonian mechanics play a role to a certain point and then it becomes very different. No one has ever done the science of counterinsurgency. So I came back from Afghanistan in 2009 and would speak at whatever venue I could come up with about the need to do some science. What is a counter? What would a counterinsurgency laboratory look like? Uh, what can we can we get a calibration from the lab on what we can expect from Afghanistan, Iraq, or wherever else we've been doing? So I had heard about the gangs and um, and how gangs re- re- rely on the passive support of a population. You know, they move into at-risk neighborhoods. Same way, okay, we go into Sudan rather than Switzerland. Um, and I heard about some gang activity in Salinas and how Salinas had talked to people about, Salinas PD had talked to some people about doing some work, uh, military advising them on how to go against the gangs. And so um, I flew out to California. And I called my brother, who used to be a writer for the Boston Globe. I said, you know, where do gang bangers hang out? Because I didn't know. And he goes, well, <laughs> he goes, MS-13 owns an auto body shop over in Somerville. Why don't you go look for that? So um, Jesus, so you just went over there. So I drove around Salinas, California, going to auto body shops. And sure enough, you see, like, the signature lookouts. And, you know, it's a, like a, I think it was like a Sunday night or a, maybe a Sunday night, you know. And, like, every auto body shop in certain parts of the neighborhood is open for business on a Sunday evening, Right. right. And I don't know if they thought I was crazy, you know, or not, but I'd get up there and walk around, and the idea was I was assessing Salinas as a laboratory, a counterinsurgency laboratory, the whole idea that you would work with the police to do, to um, develop technologies, tactics, procedures to use against gangs and use it as an experimental model of, of, of insurgents. So you're almost thinking of MS-13 
uh, as this group that you need to... I need uh, them to be a lab rat to model the Taliban. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's, and that's so, fascinating. Um, so I came back, and I'm talking to um, a bunch of people. I talk to SOCOM. I go to all these defense conferences, and I'm up there saying, hey, listen, I don't need another widget. I need a counterinsurgency laboratory. You know, people are looking at me like I lost my mind. And so I met my National Guard unit one weekend uh, down in Rhode Island, the Special Operations Unit down there, and I'm pontificating to a bunch of guys about the counterinsurgency laboratory. My buddy Mike Catone, who was, um, you know, 20-something years in Army Special Forces and um, Massachusetts State Trooper, came up to me afterwards and said, hey, listen, uh, you know, I work in Springfield, Massachusetts. We get a bad gang problem in the North End, and we're starting to apply counterinsurgency techniques there. So um, I started working with them, and finally it dawned on me, this is a great problem for um, a class. It's at the interface of, you know, engineering and the social sciences. It's a good design problem. Will this work? And so I taught a junior-level engineering class on it. We had Harvard students on patrol with Mass State Troopers <laughs> in cars and helicopters on foot. Uh, we set up a command center over at Harvard, and we had a map of all the crack houses in the north end of, of um Springfield, and we were running off. We had, basically, there was someone in that office about 20 hours a day, cops going in and out. We were down there um, every week on the streets. And, um, you know, it, it wound up being a pretty successful exercise. They've had double-digit decreases in crime now. We're almost 10 years into this down there in Springfield. We've had double-digit decreases in crime. And um, some of the students spun off a software company, and we came up with a totally different set of analytics wow. for uh, crime. Subsequently, I taught a course on barbecue. Um, I'd had I'd been at the Liberty Bowl before the <laughs> Cincinnati Vanderbilt Liberty Bowl game in 2010. And I saw a bunch of people out there cooking barbecue in the parking lot for a barbecue contest, and it was all variations on a trash can. And I'm looking around, and I was offended as an engineer. I'm like, we don't understand the fundamental laws of of smoking meat to the point we, we we're still cutting you know 55 gallon drums in half to cook supper. Um, <laughs> so I spent about three years, um, you know, in the in the counterinsurgency class I had been you know basically two tours in Afghanistan and years thinking about counterinsurgency with barbecue I'd have to go to San Diego to talk about you know pediatric heart disease and um, I'd stay an extra day I'd map out the local barbecue joints I'd roll in about two o'clock to a barbecue joint you know after the lunch rush before the supper rush and uh, I'd sit down and order a plate of ribs and I'd ask you know hey can can pitmaster talk to me for a second you know big old pot belly pitmaster come out of the back sauce all over his apron and I'd say hey listen I'm a professor at Harvard I'm doing a research project on barbecue would you talk to me so you can imagine the reactions I was getting from these guys and so I'd pull my business card I'd slide across the table I'm like hey listen if you change your mind I'd love to talk to you and they'd almost always sit down across from me, across the table from me and sit down and tell me their stories and it was amazing the That's stories cool. I would hear I would hear about you know they lost their job their daddy had always done a pig, uh, a pig pick and so they just opened up a little barbecue stand first they were selling uh, uh, you know pork shoulders and pork butts, and then all of a sudden it evolved into a company, you know. And I spent three years traveling the country, you know, taking notes, talking to these pitmasters. We designed a class. We taught at Harvard. We spun out a, a class. Some of the students joined me in the class, and uh, now we're, we're selling smokers. Um, I teach classes. And if on, someone wanted to buy one of those smokers, where could they find it? Go to Dezora.co. C-O. Okay, we'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now tell me about the project you did with um, dresses and Lady Gaga was involved. Well, yeah, well, she, 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 that didn't work out with Lady Gaga. But um, I've been very interested in fashion design for a long time. And um, 
everyone goes, how did you get into couture? I mean, what was your path? I'm like, well, fashion and camouflage are kind of the exact opposite of each other. And I'm very interested in wearing camouflage. <laughs> the key to camouflage to is that you, you don't want to be seen, you don't want to be shot, right? The key to fashion is you want to be seen and you want to make a statement, right? So they're kind of the inverse problem of each other. So we had this really bad camouflage pattern in Afghanistan 2009. And, you know, I was only slightly less conspicuous in the desert than if I'd had a road flare duct taped on my forehead walking around out there. It was that bad. Yeah, it was that bad, yeah. You know, how, you know how, did, how did we fuck that up? I don't know, but it was a billion dollars, billion something dollar fashion mistake that might have cost people their lives. I mean, we had these yeah, Chechen snipers I mean. over I mean, there that were like terrible. picking people off from long distance away. So I came back and I went to DARPA, and uh, I'd also gone to DARPA about the counterinsurgency lab, and they blew that off. And I tell people that a lot of the projects in my lab are based on, uh, on spite and vendettas. And um, this was no different. So I told DARPA, I said, listen, before we go off and spend another billion dollars on camouflage, why don't we go up and talk to the people in the fashion industry about their lessons learned about making things, change all the signs and the equations from positives to negatives, and see if we can design the ideal camouflage that way. And, you know, they, again, looked at me like I'd lost my mind. And so I decided, okay, uh, I'll round up a bunch of 20-year-old kids and do it better than you. So we, were, we, we eventually worked with these designers with Darte. And we developed these dresses that had, uh, we sanded down the optical fibers, we made these dresses, we were inspired by the cuttlefish. The cuttlefish has adaptive camouflage. And the idea was that you could put optical fibers in a dress, I could change your body shape, I could change the appearance, you could go to a wake, and then later on you could go out to a club, wear the same dress, dial your pattern differently on your iPhone, and you're good to go, right? We had um, sensors built into these dresses that if I, you know, if I'm talking uh, to some, uh, young lady at a bar and uh, she's really excited to be talking to me that doesn't really usually happen but if I, it did happen <laughs> if she was wearing one of our dresses the color code and the dress would change I'd be able to tell hey she's excited or she's like about to vomit whatever it was right. more pl- more applicable which would and be it, a great party theme by the way oh yeah Everyone's yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and we also had this these dresses that would talk to each other by radio so two women had worn the same dress with the same optical pattern in it as they moved closer together for a photo op, the dresses would start talking to each other, and they would coordinate different lighting patterns. Oh, wow. And so they'd look different when you took the photo op. But when they moved away, uh, the radio communication would take them back to their normal patterning. But I've, I, and then the last fashion class I did was on the neuroscience of the little black dress, because with the exception of the African continent, on almost every part of, of, of the world, through much of time, there's been some version of the little black dress. And it's because of contrast, you know, black on white, you know, it's Cartesian angles, it's maximum contrast because of the black. You don't get any weird visual psychophysical effects. Um, I, a friend of mine, Tori Birch, I always tell her I can make a, a dress that she's neurologically wired to like. She cannot not like this dress. The <laughs> idea is I, dre- I designed the dress from the neurons out. And um, I think probably one of the most neurologically perfect fashion device, fashion attire is the tuxedo. It hasn't changed since it was invented in 1816. It's Cartesian geometries, it's straight line edge detections, it's black on white, it just doesn't change. And it's because it's neurologically almost perfect. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, you know, I spent the last year doing some things, getting ready to teach some other design classes. You know, it's always up to the, uh, up to the, uh, to Harvard as to how crazy they want to get in the classroom. But I, I've watched the last school shooting I'm going to watch without doing something. So I spent the last year or so, um, thinking about schools from the perspective of someone who used to carry a gun for a living and uh, put together some concepts for shooter-proofing schools. You know, the idea that in 2017 we didn't have a single child in America die from a school fire, but we had children die from school shootings. Um, 
Uh, That's a design think, problem. Yeah, but part. think about this. Yeah. So like in a, in a school, That's we got point. fire extinguishers, we got fire alarms, sprinkler systems. We put in all these redundant mechanisms, and we don't have school fire deaths anymore. But we don't have any technology in a typical school for um, preventing casualties when a shooter comes in. So, I mean, I can wait for the policy people to keep screwing around on this gun control issue, or I can be an engineer and develop technical solutions for policymakers to decide whether or not they want to implement or not. From a perspective of someone who used to carry a gun for a living, most schools are made for killing. 30% of the volume of the school is high, high passageways for high-volume foot traffic, right? Right. i got center yeah. block walls where I can get ricochets. You can't get out unless you come through a door if I'm sitting there with a gun. So I started exploring redesigned schools and various technologies I could put in there. Assume the shooter's going to come. How can I disrupt the shooter and minimize casualties? So I'd like to teach a design class on that. That would be fascinating. That space. You can get, get a lot of Harvard students to take that. Yeah, I mean, I think it would. I mean, like, you know... I don't watch. What do you think of some of the, I don't know, political points of view, just at a high level? Like, do you think that, uh, do you think that having more guns at schools is going to prevent gun shootings? I mean, you know, the idea of having an armed teacher, even or an armed well, uh, I can tell you, I've been in combat. I'm going to tell you some. uh, If someone's got a gun, I want to have a gun. Right, I mean, like that's just that's just a the so law naturally of jungle, for you, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's natural for me. I, I don't want to make a comment about gun control because I don't want someone to think that I'm driving this class because I have a particular opinion about gun control. My opinion is this: I don't want kids getting shot in school. Totally. And so I don't care where you come down on the gun control, but if you want another gun or if you don't want any guns, I'm going to be in the middle. I'm going to develop a safe uh, place for children to learn. I'm going to try my best to keep them safe. I'm going to develop systems because I'm an engineer and that's what I do. Well, you know, I haven't, you're the first person I've heard say we have to redesign the way a school looks if we want to address this properly. Because, sure. you know, I never actually thought about it that way, but you're right. Like all the classrooms funnel into the same hallways. Yeah. There's yeah. all these doors that everyone has to go through. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, they're made for killing. I mean, so I've gone, I've right. talked to medical examiners. I've read the after-action reviews from Sandy Hook. I went to this school where there's a school shooting. Uh, you know, I do the same type of approach I did with barbecue with the gangs. Get out there and start talking to people. Start putting down some ideas. I also spent some quite a bit of time thinking about um, uh, technologies for psychological first aid. I mean, this situation with, with police shootings. Right. Everyone's quick to come down to the police, but the fact of the matter is, and I've had this situation in Afghanistan, you roll up on somebody who's acting out, you don't know how they're going to behave. you got a gun and nothing else. You can't talk sense into them. They've left the realm of the rational. Uh, you're going to like mitigate that threat by whatever means possible. And so I take a look at my uh, buddies of mine, army buddies of mine that are law enforcement officers, and they're out there with you know very little technologies or training to help deal with someone who's in the middle of a psychological crisis and edging towards violence. So the idea is I can continue to con- you know people can continue to condemn the police. Or we can sit down and come up with some, try to help them with their important mission and develop some tools uh, for them to use. And so I don't think that space has been uh, completely explored yet. So I'm revisiting the technology I thought about in Afghanistan that I wanted to have. And um, so I'd like to teach a class on that. I mean, I think, you know, in most college campuses, there's not a lot of empathy towards law enforcement, Um, at least certainly not on the college campus where I teach. And I learned in the gang class that once I got... You know, Harvard students talking to law enforcement officers it was a very deep respect for each other. That's cool. And uh, they became professional colleagues uh, for the project that we did in the North End. And I would like to build that kind of camaraderie 
where uh, a law enforcement officer says, I have a problem, uh, maybe I should call the people at Harvard and, and um, you know, and they will help me with this, you know, it, it's to everyone's benefit. So I'd like to teach a class on that. It's public service. Again, it's at the interface of lots of different fields. It's a very transdisciplinary problem. And then I have a 10-year-old daughter, Will, so um, I uh, got very interested in ice cream. <laughs> and I went to ice cream school up in Canada, uh, in Guelph, uh, University of Guelph. And I've been spending a lot of time thinking about what's the new ways to make ice cream. Uh, the whole idea, can I beat Halo? I think I can. Uh, everyone's uh, excited about Halo. Uh, but uh, certainly anyone who's eaten Halo knows that there's some challenges there uh, in terms of getting the texture. I spent a lot of time. You know, the thing is, I spent a lot of time in barbecue. People always ask me, how'd you get into barbecue from tissue engineering? It's the exact opposite. In tissue engineering, regenerative medicine, where a lot of my research is at Harvard in my laboratory, I'm trying to build tissues. Right. right? I, I want a, a matrix of excessor, ma- I want a, a, a network of excessor matrix proteins, and I want to build muscle cells around it, right? Because I'm mostly doing cardiovascular. Right. Well, what's meat? It's muscle on a collagen network, right? And, and where did smoking come from? It came from the cheapest cuts of meat when southern poor would get a brisket. That's the meat in between a cow. The cow doesn't have collarbones, right? So it's got this really tough meat in between its front legs. And if you had to eat nothing but brisket in order to survive without smoking it, you'd starve to death because the collagen is so tough. You want to do is you want to change that collagen to gelatin and make it juicy, you know, really flavorful. So uh, everything I learned about tissue engineering, again, just like in fashion design and in camouflage, I just had to change the signs. It was the inverse problem. I want to take apart meat versus put it put together, which is what I do in regenerative medicine. And in ice cream, uh, a lot of the things I've been learning how to do with proteins and protein networks for tissue engineering is directly applicable to how you make a smooth, creamy ice cream. So um, hoping to maybe either do a, do, a, do a class around that, maybe eventually do a company around that. Well, one thing I love that you're describing is this idea of, of taking, you know, basic understanding, or I should say an advanced understanding of, you know, engineering principles and then pattern recognizing them across all these different disciplines. I mean, you effectively have just compared making ice cream to how you might, you know, target a gang. So I tell you, I mean, listen, I mean, the idea for the city as a laboratory for gangs was directly applicable to my, directly derived from my cardiac work. The entire right, that, that's uh, body of, a of, of cardiovascular medicine right now, everything at the lab is being driven by observations from the Framingham Heart Study, Framingham, Massachusetts. Uh, they have this longitudinal study of the population of Framingham, Massachusetts for heart disease. Every time they build a gym there in Framingham, every time they build a McDonald's uh, or, or, or fast food place in, in, in Framingham, they're making a, that's an intervention in this experiment, right? So the city as a laboratory is not something I'm unfamiliar with because I come from cardiovascular science. So going into gangs, the whole idea of using the city as a counterinsurgency laboratory is something that... Uh, is not uncomfortable at all to me. It's something that anyone who does cardiovascular medicine is familiar with. So, you know, when you go to the, I mean, I recently, everyone's always asking me, how do you come up with all these different things you do? Mostly it's pediatric disease, traumatic brain injury, combat casualty care, you have barbecue, ice cream, fashion design, gangs. Um, You're working with Whoop. <laughs> yeah, we're working with, with, with Whoop. So they asked me how I did this. So I, I recently developed a technique that, um, if you take a look at LinkedIn, a typical way you do a, a resume, it's so antiquated and stupid. And I, I have started a, a, another consulting company last year based around using the same types of battlefield analysis techniques I use in Afghanistan, applying them to the way pharma and biotech deal with the FDA. It's called after-action reviews. 
And during the course of engaging with a lot of these companies, I wound up consulting quite a bit about leadership and the leadership of creative teams, which I feel very strongly about. After a quarter century in the Army and leading a team at Harvard that's done so many disparate things, I've got some observations, some opinions, maybe some tools to help people. But one of the things I'm struck by with um, these companies I consult to is they only look at their employee in terms of what they were trained to do in terms of their degrees not what their avocational or their passions are outside the workplace and how they can pull them in to bring value to the employer. Smart. So I developed this creative map, and it's an interactive map that breaks down your life experiences and starts to draw the dots between them. So I did this to explain my own research because I kept using this joke that if you combine schizophrenia and tenure, that's how you get someone like me. But I went and did this. <laughs> but now I developed this creative map, and so I go to schools. I've done this with small children. I do this with my creative, my, with my students at Harvard. I do this with my consulting clients. And the, for me, once I started watching my students do, do these creative maps, I learned a lot more about how to mentor them, but also about how I can help them develop very creative paths forward for their life. And I hope that the whole idea that you might be able to get an employer to um, – to uh, get a little bit more out of that employee and make that employee a little bit more vested by bringing their other passions into the workplace, that's important. Um, for me, I just want to say one other thing about the ice cream. The barbecue was very much a southern narrative. I'm from the south, right? But ice cream has a transcultural narrative and that, you know, if you go to uh, Iran, or Persian ice cream, you know, they were the first people to start putting saffron and stuff like this in their ice cream. There's whole cultural rituals around ice cream there. You go to Turkey and they got this almost taffy-like ice cream. I mean, one of the most interesting ice cream scenes, I think, in the world is Cuba. You know, Fidel had this whole idea that they would have better ice cream in Cuba than they would in the U.S. So, like, they had these Cuban ice cream makers sponsored by the government back in the 60s. So that they was, were, like, his land on the moon. Oh, yeah, yeah. They were they were pumping out, like, 130-something <laughs> different flavors That's of ice cream I've never back heard in the that. 60s. Yeah, yeah, because he gave a talk at Harvard. He went across the street in Harvard Square. He had some ice cream. That's where the idea came from. It came from Harvard Square, right? So, um so the great thing about doing an ice cream project is I can include my daughter in the ice cream That's uh, in cool. the research. So, right. you know, I couldn't, I, I, I can't get a visa down to Cuba because I'm still an American soldier. I'm still in the reserves. So I need to study ice cream. So one of my Harvard students in my lab, his cousin is Gloria Estefan, you know, the Cuban community down there in Miami. And so he got me this whole list from through uh, uh, Gloria of uh, authentic Cuban ice cream places down in Miami. So I packed up my daughter. We took the lab notebooks, and we went down to Miami and ate ice cream for a few days, right? Then we found this really cool Persian ice cream place down in Watertown, Mass. Went over there, spent uh, a day eating uh, Persian ice cream and talking to that man about his craft. And he'd done something very interesting. He was Persian-American, but he'd gone back to Iran to learn the art of making Persian ice cream and then come back over here. So I love hearing these people's personal stories and, and bringing that into the research and conserving the cultural ritual when you do these kind of things. So, you know, everything I've done, you know, in the battlefield, in the lab, or, you know, as a father, a lot of times these things are connected, and I'd like to be able to help people replace the modern resume. I mean, I take a look at LinkedIn, and it's so antiquated in terms of, like, how you hunt talent. I'm not so much interested in your degrees and your employers. What are the other life experiences? And I'll tell you one of the things that really was a breaking point for me when I said there's got to be a better way. Well, I was, my parents lived down in Georgia, and I got a call from a, a lady who had gone to high school with my sister, said, hey, there's a young man here. He's about mid-20s. He's going to community college. He hadn't had a lot of breaks in his life, but he's taking a biology class. And he's really excited. Would you talk to him? And I'm like, hey, listen, i got to fly home the next day, but if he meets me at the Waffle House at 5 o'clock in the morning, I'll buy him breakfast and talk to him. Kid shows up. We start talking. Good young man, just hadn't had a whole lot of breaks. He had one biology class at his community college, and it was kind of exciting to him. And I said, hey, listen, um, 
But there wasn't a whole lot I could do with that, right? So I said, listen, take a couple more classes and get in contact with me. We're eating breakfast and um, get in contact with me. And then I'll see, uh, you know, if there's an opportunity to get you an internship in a lab or something like that. He said, oh, he's really excited. So we pay the bill and we're going out to the parking lot so I can fly up, you know, drive up to Atlanta to catch my flight. As we go out there, I've got this little crappy rental car. And right next to it is this hot rod, right, with this amazing paint job. And the alarm goes off. You know, he turns off the alarm as we're going out there. And I'm like, hey, dude, is this your ride? And he goes, yeah. I said, man, this is really nice. He goes, well, yeah, what I got to do this, that, and the other to it. I got to work on this part of the engine. I got to do this part of the electrical system. I said, wait a second. You, you built this? He goes, yeah. I'm like, why didn't you tell me this when I first <laughs> asked you what you do? Because anybody can put this skill set to use in a laboratory. Right. But he didn't see that as part of his value to an employer. He didn't see the fact that he built this extraordinary piece of technology. He saw his only value to me as a biologist around a lab was the fact that he had taken this biology class. How many more people are out there with all these extraordinary talents from other parts of their life that we're missing, that we're not getting the value out of? I mean, I started seeing this when I started recruiting veterans into my laboratory from Bunker Hill Community College and Northeastern University. These veterans would come in. What they lacked for in scientific uh, training or education, they made up for with their familiarity with equipment. Once you've handled explosives and satellite radios and firearms and stuff like this, you're not intimidated by the half a million dollar confocal microscope. So bring these veterans in, train them up on how to maintain this microscope. They will own it because maintenance is a core value. Taking care of the equipment is what professionals do. They will own it. Then they build relationships with other scientists in the laboratory to develop themselves as a scientist. So the whole idea of understanding what are these intangibles, what are these other skills, what are these other things that you do outside your professional life that can bring value to an employer. So in our group, we talked earlier about visualization. Several years ago, I was explaining to one of my postdocs how I wanted to take a rat apart, rebuild it as a stingray, genetically modify <laughs> it so it could see blue light and I could lead it through an obstacle course with a laser pointer. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And I quite clearly, I'm like, this guy cannot visualize this. And so I had a choice, Will. I could either hire a sports psychologist to come in and hire the, teach these people how to visualize these crazy experiments, or I could do something different. And what I chose was to do something different. We cleared out part of the lab space. We made studio space for artists. And we started breeding artists into the laboratory. And with every science paper we do, we try to do one piece of art. And that art is supposed to communicate the emotional uh, component of the creativity or the innovation behind this. That's so, cool. inspired by the stained glass in the church, where um, the stained glass in the church is designed to teach Bible stories to people that are illiterate, I can do a painting, a digital painting, of a heart valve we're making for children. And you can see this child with their chest filleted open getting a heart valve. And as a parent, your heart just goes out to this child. And so, I don't care how little scientific education you've got, you will immediately understand the importance of what we're trying to do uh, with building these heart valves. And so, but the artists go through a much faster creative cycle than the scientists. So now everyone's cranked up to a higher RPM when it comes to creative ideas. And the visualization through art is helping the scientists understand what we want to do. It's also helped communicating to the masses why we're doing the science that we do. So the idea of building a big tent strategy in any company or any research and say, well, hey, I'm not just going to welcome you, Will, as a CEO. I'm going to welcome you, Will, as an athlete, as an artist, as a parent. Sure. All these other things that impact your life are bringing value to Whoop. Uh, that's very important to us. And so we've done this in our laboratory at Harvard. And 
You never know who you're going to find in our lab. we got people in there doing paintings, making dresses, engineering meat, working on heart valves for children, working on brain injury, other kinds of pediatric diseases. You might see L'Oreal, Tory Burch, Adidas, Nike, um, Pfizer, Merck. You never know who's going to be in our lab. And the whole idea is we learn from all of them. Anyone can come to the lab and hang out for a while. We've learned so much about making textile heart valves for children by talking to Tory Burch's team that developed the Tory Burch Sport line. So much from talking to people at Nike and at Reebok about their interest in making performance textiles for their athletes. We've turned it into making medical devices. And so this is really important. I've learned everything I took from tissue engineering, I took into barbecue. The more I learn about barbecue, I'm taking that back into tissue engineering. So And maybe ice cream. Maybe ice cream, yeah. And part of that was because I, I spent, I was a judge on a Food Network show, and I was talking to these chefs, and I was stunned by how much material science they knew. The chef had used alginate, which is a protein that comes from seaweed, to make his chocolate flexible. That's cool. And we use alginate as a biomaterial. And I'm talking to the chefs, and I'm like, holy cow, this guy knows a lot of material science. He doesn't know the theory, but he knows he's, it's applied. And so I started thinking about, hey, i, I got to talk to people that aren't necessarily scientists and pull what they know into my portfolio of knowledge and help train my students. Have you ever read the book, The Art of Learning? It's by Josh Whiteskin. Well, I don't read books. If I need information, I just think of it. <laughs> well, no, anyway, I read book. Anyway, well, it sounds like you just think of it. But it, what's interesting is a lot of what you're describing, uh, Whiteskin does a fascinating job describing in this book because yeah. he's the kid from Searching for Bobby Fischer. You remember that chess Yeah, movie? yeah, 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 yeah. So that kid goes on to not only be a world-class chess player but to be uh, the, the world champion jiu-jitsu uh, jiu-jitsu uh, Brazilian black belt. Uh-huh. And you would never think a chess champion would go on to be the best Brazilian yeah. fighter in the world. Right? Yeah. And his whole point is I wasn't a prodigy, a prodigy at chess or a prodigy at fighting. I was just really good at learning. And he breaks down a lot of these principles that you're breaking down in your lab. And you, you, what you describe is fascinating because it's, it's like this you remove all ego in trying to understand a problem. You go out and you meet with the, the gangs. You go out and you meet with the, the, the chefs. You go out and you meet with the, even the parents to try to help understand uh, how to solve problems. And you distill it down to the very base level um, problems. And the concept that Josh talks about, and I've met him, he's a fascinating guy, is you start with small circles and then you get bigger and bigger and yeah. bigger. Yeah. And that's how you really you know, learn something and, and then, you know, you solve the problem. So well, I, I think the work you're doing is fascinating. I mean, the biggest battles I find in the classroom are against shame and pride. They're the inhibitors to, to learn. Totally shame agree. and pride. Yeah. You know, but, but talk about being a, like a very general learner. I think specialization is the enemy of innovation. Because you take a look at the big industrialists today, they're very much generalists. They integrate over lots of information, lots of different categories. A couple of years ago, I was at Google Zeitgeist, and I was having dinner with Larry Page and with Kanye, and we were having a discussion about creativity. That's a funny dinner. You, let me tell you something. It was, but it was fascinating. It was really important for me. And you know, Larry said, you know, I didn't didn't want to do search. This is why we're doing all these other things at Google. And Kanye, everyone knows Kanye's creativity. Kanye was like, hey, listen, I didn't want to just do music. I moved into fashion and basically spent his fortune doing these things. I said, hey, I didn't want to just do pediatric disease. I wanted to do these other things. And the idea is that creativity is not specialized. And that if you're creative in one endeavor, you're probably creative in multiple endeavors. And, you know, I, the whole idea of how do you build a generalist who can do these things is, is something I've spent a lot of time 
thinking about in education and watching my child learn. My, my daughter carries with her a little notebook. She's seen me carry these notebooks with my scientific ideas, and she writes stuff in there. And it, when she was really young, she wouldn't distinguish between scientific ideas and art ideas. She would just call it my designs. She didn't know the difference. And it dawned on me she was right. All she knew was design. And so I've argued at the PTO of her school, and you can imagine how well this goes over, <laughs> we should do away with the science fair. Do away with the science fair K-5 through and just have a design fair and where you can have science, technology, you can have art. You can talk about how you design the dress you're wearing or how you design the meal that you're cooking for your family. The whole idea of celebrating good design and teaching regimented and disciplined design processes because if you know good design, you can do anything. Right, you can do anything. I can totally. do the I can do the BD at your company. I can I can design your dress. I can build the bassinet for your new baby. I can build a heart valve to save your baby when they get sick. Um, I can I can I can I can design the you know the, the, the helmet to help for them to wear in a sport event. I can design your vacation when you, they get to be in high school <laughs> and you really need to de-stress. Right. I mean, the whole idea is good design will carry you through all these different endeavors, and it's one way of being a generalist. That's who we celebrate. We celebrate the generalists. The, it's not the specialist. Elon Musk is not a specialist. Larry Page is not a specialist. Kanye is not a specialist. These are very uh, broadly applied uh, creative thinkers who are generalists, and that's and they're and they're leaders. That's the important thing is they're leaders. Well, I've been really impressed with some of those names that you just mentioned, especially uh, Kanye and uh, and Elon, in that. On such a daily basis, these guys are being written up as crazy, you know, and, and uh, you know, they're literally being attacked from a lot of different sides. And there's a whole sorts of different reasons for that. Some of them are business related, short sellers, whatever. But, you know, I think your point about creativity and this overlap with just thinking outside of the box, to the point of where a lot of your ideas literally sound crazy you know it, there's a balance there and i think that somehow in society we have to embrace it a little bit more listen first of all i mean it, one has to be very careful about reading on the press or listening to gossip about them forming opinions about people's personalities i mean nowadays it's it's so heartbreaking but i think i, I thought that was, yeah but I let those, me tell you some uh the conversation i had that night at the dinner table with larry kanye a couple others were were, were, were around too um uh, I came away from the conversation thinking that Kanye was probably one of the most brilliant men I've ever met in my life. My circles at MIT, at Harvard, at Johns Hopkins when I was there, other great thinkers I've met in the military and in my travels around the world. Uh, this is a very creative guy. He could be very reflective, and I had a very different perception from him based on that. It was a very intellectually enriching conversation for me to sit down and talk with him and Larry. It was something I, I reflected on quite a bit afterwards. And um, I think that you have to take a look at what these creative people are, are de- doing, uh, what they're generating, not the way they're portrayed or what my, how they behave or their conduct or whatever. Um, there's a certain amount of showmanship, uh, I think, there in a lot of these things, and showmanship can be very important in terms and of... And it can help people. sell product. Sell product, but you got to make people believe. But the thing is, nowadays, I mean... I could sit here and give you all this different scientific features of our barbecue smokers from Dezora, but I can tell you the emotional story of going and talking to these pit masters in rural Alabama and Tennessee and Arkansas, Right. and that's what's going to make you buy my smoker is because you want to be a part of that culture around that. You're selling emotion. Emotion moves the needle. Um, data is extremely important, but if you take a look at like 
two of the biggest technological developments we've seen over the years. One was the Nike Air Jordan, which was the technological advance of the Nike Air Jordan was completely lost in the marketing campaign uh, around Michael Jordan. But that was a huge advance for athletic footwear when the Nike Air Jordan was built. Then take a look at the original iPod, the Apple iPod, the music, digital music thing. The woman dancing. Um, Those with, commercials with, were so iconic. Yeah. The, 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 black, I mean, the, I think the about, shadow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, the totally. fact of the matter is, were you buying a digital uh, storage device or were you buying a fashion accessory? You were buying a fashion accessory and this carefree lifestyle that you wanted to feel like you could be dancing and listen to your own music. But the fact of the matter is there was some extraordinary technology in that little iPod. I actually bought Apple's stock after they came out with that product. Yeah, sure. So it was a great technology, <laughs> but it was, so was the fashion accessory. I mean, yeah, Same any company that can Jordan. introduce a technology that innovative with that good a marketing campaign, you yeah. can bet on that. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, I, I think that that's... Um, look at... I mean... In, in both of those situations, what you were doing was you were selling people themselves, the image of themselves. I mean, I think at Whoop, what you're doing is you're selling people the key to own themselves. I mean, your biggest asset is your body, your health. It literally is. And for a professional athlete, a tactical athlete, it's how they make a living. It's how they put the beans on the table. And um, we all are very interested in ourselves, right? We under, want to understand how we work, how we live. Um, and, and, and how we survive. And um, so, I mean, that's, I think, one of the big consumer lessons here is um, you want to be smarter about yourself. Um, I think your technology does that, certainly does that, um, and hopefully you prolong your customers. Well, I appreciate that, Kit. Mm-hmm. So, so take me back in time. You know, 2003, you joined the faculty at Harvard as a biophysicist with a focus on cardiac cell biology. How did you get into this? So I, I had done an undergraduate at Boston University and then did a master's and, and, and a Ph.D. in physics at Vanderbilt. But I'd gotten very interested. I've always been interested in biology, um, always been very interested in uh, also in human performance. But I was interested in cardiovascular performance was my first scientific interest. And uh, after I finished at Vanderbilt, I did some postdocs up here at Children's Hospital looking at uh, uh, tumor biology. Then I did another postdoc down at Johns Hopkins. But I had joined the reserves while I was in graduate school, and so I'd had these two parallel careers, and then at 9-11, they kind of collided. So uh, when I was at Hopkins, I got deployed to Afghanistan for a year early in the war, 2002-2003, and Harvard held my position until I, I landed in uh, August of 2003. I came right off the battlefield, out-processed at Fort Bragg, left there on a Saturday night, flew up to Boston, and my first meeting at Harvard was on Sunday morning to go over the plans for my new lab space and I was just roughly a, 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 you know, maybe 72 hours off the Pakistani border. And just just to, for our audience sake, like talk about what, what was ultimately the mission from your standpoint? It was about chasing down terrorists. It was all about disrupting. Full stop. Yeah, the hunt down Al-Qaeda, hunt down Taliban. Um, you know, obviously we're Americans, right? So you, you're not going to walk past a starving kid and, and not do something. So at that time, we didn't have, there wasn't a whole lot of U.S. money coming in for, um, for aid for, for, for Afghanistan. So I was writing letters to every old girlfriend, every mother of an old girlfriend that would still speak to me, <laughs> um, church groups, school classes, asking them to send hygiene packets over for the kids. You know, the infant mortality rate was, they, as they were reported by the United Nations, was about one in four. 
Oh my God! Um, but that was probably it was probably higher than that because if you ask the typical Afghan down there in the south where I was in Kandahar province, you know how many kids do you have? Here, say four. It turns out he's got eight, but he doesn't count the little girls. So the question is: Do those epidemiological statistics on infant deaths include little girls? Oh, so wow. I mean, the, you know, the children starving to death, hygiene conditions were terrible. They lived in mud huts, you know, and um, there were no, no toys in these villages. These kids would play with like cow patties. I mean, it was it was heartbreaking. And um, so I think that you know, besides the physical beating you take, and then the excitement of a you know a, 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 a firefight or something, it just takes a toll on the soul. You know, you can only see so much violence. You can only see so many children starving to death, suffering. You know, you have these emotional and cognitive ups and downs. You know, someday you go into a village and, uh, you know, there's a little girl going to school. And you're coming out of there and you're pumped and you're thinking, wow, this is awesome. This is a big step. You know, one little girl's going to school. You think about the courage of that family. And then the next day, they cut some woman riding around in a taxi with a man who's not, you know, a member of her family, and they cut her arms off. I mean, like, so it's like you go up and down like wow, this. Yeah. And um, that's Afghanistan, you know. It's as savage as, you know, we have a lot more news reports coming out about the savagery of ISIS, Daesh, over in Syria. Uh, the Taliban been doing, cutting people's arms off, cutting people's heads off, you know, hanging people up um, for a long time. And it's just... That's the brand of violence you saw over there. And it wears on you. And then, and a lot of it, you see these things, you feel these things emotionally, and you carry it in your body. And I think it adds to the wear and tear on your physique while you're over there. You're so stressed. You're so guarded. You're so tight about these things. Um, I've read a little bit about the psychology of competition, you know, yeah. just broadly speaking. Sure. And one of the concepts that comes up is... This idea that you want to try to embody the mindset of the person or the group or whatever that you're competing against. And in your case, like, you're talking about just a pure evil, like a pure cancer. I mean, ISIS, Taliban, it's so hard to wrap your head around what their mission is or what they stand for. Like, how, how would you go about that and just thinking about, okay... I try to want, I want to try to get into the mindset of these guys and what they're actually trying to do because in some ways like that will make you more effective in combating them, but it also just seems impossible to try to get in that mindset. Well, I mean, going back to this competitive mindset, I mean, I think the ultimate competition um, is good versus evil, but I would say you know number two would be a firefight. It's an extraordinary it's the most competitive you know of all the things I've done playing sports rowing things like that I did over the years when you're in a firefight it absolutely maxes you on every scale spiritually uh, morally and certainly uh, physically cognitively and I was never scared in a firefight I was always just trying to get on top of the situation how can I dominate this how can me and my guys dominate the situation so and it's it's thrilling Right. It's hard for people to imagine, but it's absolutely thrilling. It's not thrilling when, you know, the people you're shooting at run into a house and throw the children on top of the roof so you can't shoot at them. And that's happened to you. It all happens, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my and, God. I mean, and there, that's where you're, you're challenged morally. You know, are you, what are you going to do? Are you going to shoot back or are you going to, like, you going to risk getting killed because you're not going to shoot a kid who's running around screaming and crying on top of a roof in the middle of a firefight? So what so, you do in that situation? Americans don't shoot at kids. Right. 
like go back in time to the first firefight you were in. Yeah. Do you remember it? Yeah. What was special about it? I see you smirking. <laughs> there was a couple of things that were special about it. I mean, first of all, we all got out of it alive, so that's a great thing. No one got wounded. But um, I don't know if this is my first one, but this is the first one I remember. Okay. We're going through the Tangy Valley down in Logar province, and let me give the background. When I was, This is on my second tour, and I was going through Fort Benning to get in-processed and get all my gear because I was deploying over there and linking up with a unit in theaters, going over to the 3rd Brigade, 10th Mountain Division. And so you go through all these physical stations, you know, to get equipment. And when I got the optician, I said, you know, there's an Army optician there, and there was, um, I think it was a, a, a NCO that was recording my vision. I said, hey, dude, I need you to hook me up. I want you to tune my script and my glasses <laughs> for 2010 because I knew that whenever I engaged somebody else. So performance enhancement. All right. Yeah, performance enhancement. I mean, I wanted to see him before he saw me, right? Right, yeah. And he said, like, no problem, sir. You know, he, I was a major. He, he, he uh, maybe he was a little bit intimidated, but he wrote my script for 2010 inside my glasses. And did that work, by the way? Well, I'll tell you the story now. Okay. Firefight. So we're, we're coming through the Tangy Valley. We've been out, I was on a route clearance patrol. I was doing a study at the time on, on improvised explosive devices and our tactics for this. I'm sitting in the back of the vehicle, and there's these two benches. It was a RG31 was the nomenclature of the vehicle. I had a robotic arm. And uh, in the back of the truck with me was a dog handler with a dog, a working dog. It wasn't a military working dog because we were short in this. This was a contractor <laughs> dog, and it's important to note this in just a second. So he'd been trained to s- smell explosives but not how to behave in, in a firefight. <laughs> so we're driving in an S-curve. And all of a sudden, all the people on the side of the road just disappeared. It was twilight in the Tangy Valley. And uh, I said, we're going to get hit. And about 10 minutes later, we're in this S-curve. This RPG sails out of the valley oh my God. over the hood of the vehicle. And uh, the TC of the vehicle yells, um, you know, RPG. And uh, I was looking out the window down the floor of the valley, and there's like this little blue smoke cloud, which is one of the signature events of an RPG launch. And I said, I got him. And they have these little firing portals in the wall, uh, in the glass windows of these vehicles. So I opened up. This is the up, vehicle that you're in. That I'm yeah. in. So I opened up the portal. It's about, you know, yay big, a little bit bigger than, um, say, like a, 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 the diameter of a, a Coke can. Uh, okay. And um, so I bring my M4 up, go through there, and start engaging this dude. And all, the whole valley lights up. I mean, they were all over there <laughs> in a linear ambush of this stuff. So you started it. Yeah, well, well yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. I, I, think, I mean, I, I saw it got first. I got first rounds, but I was so focused on my target. I, I, was, I was not aware of was anybody else engaging Did you eliminate there. the target? Uh, well, let me just get to that point. <laughs> so, like, then it lit up, and it was a target-rich environment, so there were a lot of people. The guy was about 250 meters from me. Um, and, and for and our so, audience, like, how far is that? Is that far... Is that, yeah, t- is that like, typical uh, distance? Uh, that you're 200, shooting 250 at? meters. I mean, I, I would imagine, and he was, um, I don't know, maybe two football fields away or something like that. And it was kind of linear down into the floor of the valley. I, we were kind of up. But is that um, a far shot, or is that yeah, it's sort a far of shot? Business. I mean, like I'd really like engage at like you know 100 Shotgun meters, level. but um, yeah. So I started engaging him, and all of a sudden everything lit up, and so there was lots of folks to shoot at. So. As I'm firing, that was great because, you know. And you've got a barricade in front of you? Or? I've got some glass, you know. It's not going to hold back RPG around. Ah, bulletproof is relative, you know. Okay. <laughs> Small bullets, yeah. I mean, RPGs, no. So I'm firing rounds, and uh, so now everything's lighting up. And I'm like, like 
pumping as much lead as I can because we had some guys that had dismounted from the vehicle from us and they got pinned down behind a rock. So like we had to like put as much lead into the valley as we could to like relieve the pressure on them. So remember that dog? So all of a sudden, all <laughs> the volume of that, all those gunshots going off inside the vehicle, the dog just snapped. And then my hot brass because uh, uh, from my rounds is coming down on top of this dog. So this dog just snaps and screams and yells. So the dog handler is fighting the dog the whole time I'm engaged. I mean, he's in a knockdown drag out. I wouldn't say a fist fight, but maybe a paw and fist fight with this big German shepherd. About oh, my 100. gosh. And this thing was a beast, too. So, and, of course, I was over 40 when I was engaging this. So whenever right. you can engage in a firefight from a seated position, it's kind of nice, you know. And I was like, I didn't want to leave my firing portal. Because I could see all my targets because that guy at Fort Benny to give me 2010 vision, right? right? So I'm like completely. So that worked, the 2010. Oh, yeah, I saw the guy right away. I mean, I saw the blue smoke. If I hadn't had my, my, my specs turned up, uh, I would have seen so this. So do guy. you just always have the same specs? I do now. now. I do now. Like, why not? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, I do now, yeah. So, um, so then uh, uh, after the, the firefight is over, you know, I'm dripping sweat, you know, I'd like been changing magazines inside the vehicle. There's like, it's like smoky from all the gun smoke. And there's these tufts of, of fur from this big German <laughs> shepherd floating around in the air. And, and I oh look down at the floor next to me. And this the the dog handler is looking up at me, and there's sweat just pouring down his face. And he's like, got this head, his hand on the German Shepherd's snout. And he's like, all, all of them's on top of this German Shepherd holding them. And the German Shepherd's trying to pant too, you know? And me and the dog handler just kind of exchanged, uh, you know, glances, looking at each other's eyes like, I had my fight, he had his fight. I mean, <laughs> I don't think he got a single round off the whole time. And he had a much harder fight than I did fighting that dog because that thing snapped. And not as good uh, of a story. No, it was, I got a good story out of it because no one got wounded, right? Yeah, right. But, uh, yeah, but anyway, that was, you know, funny things happen during a, a firefight. And um, we were down there in that Tangy Valley, another firefight one time, and... Um, We'd had like a rolling gun medal since about eight o'clock in the morning, and uh, you know at the end of the day, it got really gnarly. We were pinned against a cliff. Lead vehicle hit an ID, flipped sideways. We had some casualties in the first vehicle. Um, they were on top of the cliff over us, and then they started surrounding us, and we were getting ricocheted. And that's off a the huge cliff. disadvantage, right? Yeah, yeah. So we were literally getting shot at from five different directions because we were getting hit by ricochet. People were getting hit by ricochets. Have you ever been shot? No. Um, Good thank for goodness. You. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, really good for me. So anyway, and you're a big guy. I mean, yeah, I'm a big target. There's a lot to shoot at. How tall are you? I'm a big and I'm slow. I'm almost six six, right? Yeah, right. So I and you look every bit of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess so. But um, <laughs> so um, anyway, uh, at the end of this battle, we've been taking casualties. I mean, like air weapons team. We had medevacs coming in. There have been artillery strikes. I mean, like the whole place just exploded. And the quick reaction force had been launched from a. Ford operating base some miles away showed up and all of us they showed up at the at the front of our our convoy which was uh, trapped because the first vehicle was blown sideways on this mountain road yeah right and this lieutenant comes running up and his when he's running up his pants were ripped from about his right hip through the crotch all the way down to his left ankle so he was effectively naked from the waist down in front. And he comes running up. There's, like, gun smoke and everything around. And he's naked from the waist down. And he comes running up. And like, where? He yells something like, where are they? 
And we all turn and look at him, and we just burst out laughing. This guy <laughs> had no shame, no pride. He's naked from the waist down, you know, with like these rags hanging off the back of his waist, you know. But, uh, you know, in, in a way, he'd never met us. We'd never met him before. But uh, he wasn't going to let a brother get hurt. And, uh, yeah, he didn't care. I mean, it was the most important thing was saving us. And he came to us. But i tell you something. Uh, we laughed our butts off about that one. That was hilarious. And yeah, in no. the moment, you were laughing. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, during the firefight. Sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't, you don't surrender so, your humanity. Just no, you know, I know. But that's so, it's a fascinating concept, right? It, like, that, you know, you hear these guys in war. All yeah. of a sudden, just start cracking up because a guy's not wearing his pants, you know? Yeah, and, well, I mean, like these And things. that shows on some level, I guess, that becomes your new baseline, right? The the Oh, the, yeah. Being in that situation is your new baseline. It does. I mean, right? I, if you just I, dropped me out of this office into that situation, I would not be laughing in there. I mean, yeah, I know. But, I, I think that's... But because you had gotten so comfortable, right, in that environment? No, I, I mean, or I think that's you tell why... me. I, you, no, you're exactly right. I think it, that's why combat can be addictive. I mean, it, it, it is. You redefine a baseline. I mean, look, at you're talking to a guy who's never tasted a beer before. I've never done narcotics. Really? I've never done anything. No, I've never, never, never... I don't, I don't, I don't drink... Uh, I mean, I've never had beer. I've never had hard liquor. Um, but uh, the adrenaline pump... From a firefight, I mean, your, your senses are completely tuned up. You're completely in the zone. Totally. I mean, it, it's it's uh, you're tracking, you're you're solving data fusion problems like you've never solved before. Radios are barking at you. You're trying to maneuver people. You got bullets coming by. You're trying to lead people in negotiation equipment. And yeah, you're well trained for this. The military does a great job of training you for this. But um, I think at some level, though, it's more than training. You got to want it. You know, you got to have been born and envisioned, just like any athlete. I mean, and when so you I, envisioned this at a younger age. Oh yeah, whatever. I mean, for years. I mean, the subject of every every jog's daydreaming was me performing in a firefight. I mean, it was. It's fascinating. Look at. I mean, like remember, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's book Outliers: Ten Thousand Hours of Practice. Sure. I mean, I think that every minute you spend playing army as a child, every minute you 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 daydream about this kind of, uh, about combat um you visualize this stuff so much of sports performance is visualization and i think and I, we'll talk more about that in a moment when we talk about science we uh but visualizing how to perform in a firefight i think is an important part of it you, you can train somebody to do this over and over and over again you might never played army growing up you might never have daydreamed about these kind of things but i can train you over and over and over again in the shoot house um you know, out at fort Irwin, california um, until you understand, you can visualize yourself and you understand how a firefight's going to flow. Because a firefight has a very unique rhythm to it. And uh, sometimes it's different, sometimes it's not. Would you, ever, would you ever meditate or do visualization exercises? About combat? I mean, yeah. I, I never did. Some people might. I mean, but uh, when I'd go jogging at night and didn't have to worry about traffic, it was always about daydreaming about, you know, how would I perform in a firefight? So that's, you know, that's visualization in a way. Yeah, oh, yeah sure. I mean, I, I mean... Before my first firefight, I mean, I, I, I probably had hundreds of hours of visualization oh, wow. because it was, you know, I used to run quite a bit, and, um, I mean, I was out there doing it and uh, thinking about it. Uh, now the funny thing is, is when I go jogging, I've got so much experience in firefights, I don't daydream about it anymore. Right. Yeah, I don't. Um, I mean, Because now I, it's the, a little bit of Now I've done it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's no longer... Anyway, I, mean, I hate to say it, it sounds weird. It's no longer a fantasy. I mean, it's it happens. You've checked that box. Yeah, checked the box, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's 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 kind of hard. I'm on the you know I'm in a middle aged man. You start thinking about different things, right? You you worry about different things. So, um, 
But uh, yeah, I, I think every minute I spent daydreaming or, or, or fantasizing about you know how I would perform in combat prepared me well for it. I was never scared. I was never scared until I became a parent. Being a parent is terrifying. I've had been shot at, been shot from five different directions. I've had parachutes <laughs> fail, but I got a 10-year-old little girl, and that's terrifying. I mean, being a parent, because your whole heart is wrapped around this little kid. Totally. And you're so vulnerable uh, about that. So um, parenting can be very, it's rewarding, but it can be terrifying because you've just got so much emotionally invested in it. But firefight, piece of cake. Well, look, thank you for your service, first of all. Those are fascinating stories, and uh, we're all lucky as citizens to have people like you out there. So uh, I've, been, I've been a part of some really good teams. There's some good good guys, I guess, some good brothers, some good sisters uh, in the military, and uh, you know, I've always been successful when I've been part of a good team, and the military was certainly part of that. So let's talk about the other half of your brain, or, or the other uh, half of your life, I should say, which has been amazing research at Harvard and, and really how we got to know one another. Yeah. You know, I think alongside your your bravery, you've had a remarkably creative career uh, at Harvard, and it's it's definitely how we got to know one another. We came to you, I think, in early 2013. We'd been working at the Harvard Innovation Lab for yeah. maybe three yeah. or four months. Yeah. And, you know, we said, hey, Kit, this is the idea for the company. Uh, and this is where we're going. What what got you excited about Whoop at that time? So this was what, 2013. This war had been raging for about 12 years, and I had been uh, on a advisory panel to a, a government agency called DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. And this advisory panel was Defense Science Research Council. And um, by the time I engaged with you guys, I'd already been over to Afghanistan four times. Um, and we had been talking about soldier performance, and we'd been talking about resilience. By this time, we were knee-deep in the TBI problem. We were struggling with you know, lots of folks with post-combat stress, whatever you want to call it, PTSD or whatever else. I mean, uh, you know, you can only go that well so many times before you just get to the point where it's hard to deal with that. And over these years, I had you know, gotten very interested in human performance, but one of the things we got interested in this was what our first conversation was about will was sleep totally sleep and um you know sleep is so important i mean i was so struck by that study that came out in 2012 that talked about how most families that are experiencing some kind of dysfunction they look at the sleep patterns of the mother and if the mother's not getting enough sleep it puts a family at very high risk for uh for for, for dysfunction and uh, that was a study that came out in 2012, but the military had been grappling with people who were sleep-deprived. That was a fascinating yeah. study, by the way. Like, I think they went so far as to say that if you could only cure one thing in a family, it was having the mother of the family get enough sleep. Right, yeah. And then everything else would fall into place. Yeah, I mean, it's so important. I mean, I, I do believe what we learned quite a bit in the military is mind-body-soul axis, and uh, you got to develop all three at that triad. Uh, you get to develop them equally. I think certainly if you're deprived of sleep, you're starting to see breakdowns in the other parts of that of that triad. And um, but also as a as a person who's trained in bioengineering, spent a lot of time understanding how muscle builds itself. Uh, I know that you need sleep because you're build, building muscle bundles. Um, that's how you're building sarcomeres. That is a very elegant uh, choreography required for those proteins to come together and form the sarcomeres. That's the contractile unit within a muscle bundle. Um, when you work out, you're doing damage to muscle. You need to like flesh out the waste products, um, and then also you got to form all those neural networks. That's why those children, you know, the little babies, get are sleeping like 12 hours a night because those brains are like 
wiring up to recognize mama, recognize daddy, sure. and um, it's important. So, so much. Of, and, and as a classroom teacher, I understand that sleep is so important, and just in terms of processing and learning. So, our first conversation, if you recall, I started talking about the other half of wellness or fitness, which is sleep recovery, and then you guys went off and and hired a great team and start building tech along those lines. It's been a lot of fun to watch y'all really develop into an industry leader in terms of empowering athletes and performers to be able to understand the balance between their exertion and their recovery. Yeah, that was really, I would say, the thing from the earliest days of WHOOP that I was willing to bet the farm on. It was like, there were a lot of things that we needed to figure out at WHOOP, but the one thing that I was certain of is, is we got to be able to measure strain, we got to be able to measure recovery, and a big piece of recovery is sleep. And yep. You know, I think you were you were very helpful in, in sort of confirming that as a point of view. And by the way, at that time, there weren't actually a lot of coaches confirming that point of view. No. You know, recovery is very in today, but we're talking now, you know, five, six years later. At the time when I would go talk to coaches, there was this big point of view like, I need to know more about uh, exercise or speed or, you know, all these very granular things that were very practice-centric. And my point of view was like, look, there's a whole other 20 hours of the day where we can be better understanding what people are doing to their bodies. And that totally resonated for you. Well, I'll tell you when one of the things really came up with sleep. Um, I was you know, a cardiovascular researcher. A buddy of mine was wounded in Iraq. He got hit by a TBI. Um, he was really jacked up. This was early in the war when we really didn't understand what traumatic brain injury was. And um, Early in the war being like mid-2000? Yeah, 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 probably around 2005, something like that was when he got hit. And um, so I decided I, I'm going to turn into some kind of a halfway neuroscientist. If I, me and my friends are going to survive this war, so I started looking at traumatic brain injury and and uh, working with DARPA on traumatic brain injury at the cellular level to understand exactly what the mechanism was. But uh, after my second combat tour, I got named to a team called the Gray Team, and that, that team supported the chair of the Joint Chiefs to understand improvised explosive devices, and obviously the casualties resulting from them, primarily TBI. And so I went back into Afghanistan with the Gray Team, and it was now as, as a scientist who just understood the battlefield, and we talked to the people running these concussion care clinics, where the first one had been stood up by an Army doc, uh, Jennifer Bell, in, in um Ford Operating Base Shank in 2009. Now they spread across the country. Later got on when we took some civilian docks over there to Afghanistan. They said the best place in the world to get treated for a concussion was actually not the U.S. It was probably Afghanistan because of these concussion care clinics. The military really led the way in terms of concussion care. But here's what was happening. You had these young young guys that would uh, patrol and fight all day long, um, sitting there drinking sports drinks, getting over-caffeinated. Then they come back uh, from patrol and they'd be all amped up and uh, they'd play a video game and they'd game all night, uh, maybe get a couple hours of sleep and they'd roll out and go fight the whole day. So they were, they were fighting um, in the biospace and the geospace uh, all day long and then they'd be fighting in cyberspace with these computer games <laughs> right, for yeah. hours afterwards. So they were chronically deprived. <coughs> so then all of a sudden they hit an IED and they get concussed uh, on their patrol. And what they started noticing was these guys that they really weren't injured except for the concussion. They'd bring them back to concussion care clinic. It used to be back when I was a child, if you got a concussion, they'd say, don't let them sleep, don't let them sleep. I mean, I guess they were afraid we'd never wake up. 
military, we learned, let them sleep. And they'd put these kids down. And sometimes you had kids that were sleeping 17 straight hours. They'd wet their pants. I mean, like, oh wow, they were so sleep-deprived. And the doctor said, let them sleep. Let <clears throat> them sleep. And, um, and this was really important. So then the concussion care clinics really got focused on sleep hygiene. Taking out the fluorescent lights, doing subdued lighting, no TV, no video games, no sport drinks, which are just like poison. Um, just it, the whole idea of focus on sleep hygiene as an, one of the most important steps of recovering from concussion. Letting these people get sleep. So you could go into the concussion care clinics in Afghanistan, and they would have this Christmas lighting spread all around inside the clinic, and there was no other fluorescent lighting. They kept the lighting down as low as they possibly could. And then later we started to realize, hey, there seems to be a correlation between sleep and post-combat stress. And um, we were, look, I mean, uh, um, in post-combat stress, and I've walked this mile before, I mean, the, the daydreams are, t- the, the dreams are tough, you know, uh, about decisions you made, things that happened, and it can really disrupt your sleep. And I wonder sometimes if post-combat stress is really not just a factor of being sleep-deprived, on top of everything else you've dealt with for so long. Right. Um, a lot of this post-combat stress isn't happening until well after the event. But um, we just realized in the military that sleep hygiene is really important. And we, we, we train as leaders to challenge through, uh, to fight through sleep deprivation, to continue to maintain our standards of leadership and performance through sleep deprivation. But every once in a while, you've got to just take a knee. You've got to take a nap. You've got to sleep. And so we've learned in the, the military the hard way over the course of this war. And by 2011, when I was back in Afghanistan, we were about 10-year anniversary into the war. I was there on the 10-year anniversary of, of 9-11, that uh, you got to have sleep if you're going to make it through this war. And um, we started looking at sleep as a commodity. Usually, we talked about this, that usually when you call a unit, you, know, you call them, you ask, might ask for uh, a, an ACE report or what we call a LACE report. And the LACE stands for liquid, uh, ammo, um, casualties, and equipment, right? Uh, and, and you want green, green, green on all of these. Green, 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 green on all of these. So you give an update across those different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then we start talking about LACES where we would make the combat leader say, hey, are you green, yellow, or red on sleep? Do you right. need to sleep? Yeah. Right. Do you, well, how many hours of sleep have you had in the last 96? If it's less than 12, hey, your, this, your unit is, you know, I'm just, this is just arbitrary, is not combat effective right now. You're going to sit down there and you're going to sleep. It's like you lost three guys and you're a nine-man squad, right? I mean, you're not combat effective. makes a lot of sense. Effective. By the way, 12 hours in 96 also isn't a ton of sleep. No, it's not so at all. So the fact but that that's combat the baseline, pace, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but, but that can just happen. just shows you, right? It can happen, yeah. I mean, when you're out there on an op, um, you know, where they were, you know, we would air assault into the mountains and, and walk from mountain to mountain, from village to village for a week at a time. I mean, you might only get be getting three or four hours of sleep at night because, you know, even once you pull into a night position, a patrol base, uh, you know, you're, you're pulling watch, you're pulling security, so you're not going to sleep for like eight hours. I mean, you might get three or four hours of sleep and that's it. You know, and you're humping 120, 30 pounds of stuff, you're at 8,000 feet, and occasionally you're in a firefight. So, or, or, what can be even more stressful is you're doing a cordon search in the village and you're searching through these people's home who might not be bad people and you feel weird about it and it's very stressful doing that. So um, a lot of challenges and you're doing it all in a sleep-deprived situation and you got young, predominantly young men out there, 18 to 25 years of age, and we know the brain is still developing up to in the males until about you know, 25 years of age. 
So uh, these are immature and still developing brains that are being soaked in in cortisol, testosterone, also some uh, uh, oxytocin because you trust your buddies you're with, uh, and you're sleep deprived them, all this adrenaline, and then you come back from from uh, combat and you pull out all those neurochemicals that you've grown addicted to. Uh, it can be very stressful, um, and we see a lot of uh, problems with post-combat adaptation where soldiers are getting bar fights, car accidents. I mean. Uh, sexual promiscuity, all these things that are associated with acting out and trying to achieve that same level of neurochemistry. Um, and you saw that at the, at the end of combat tour, usually when you see soldiers taking chances at the end of a combat tour that they never would have done at the beginning of the combat tour. I think, it, and this is Parker speaking, I think it's completely addiction physiology. They're looking for a high and they got to raise the bar. They're going to do stuff that's a little bit more on edge while they're out there. And it's all about achieving a, a certain high, and, and the highest combat. Well, let's talk about that. You, you touched on a really interesting concept, which is when folks come back from combat, right? Today, there are these, I think, uh, somewhat arbitrary periods of time in which you're out of combat before you go back in, right? There isn't yep. necessarily a variable protocol that determines whether someone's ready to go back and this was something that we talked about a lot in 2013 and at whoop it's something that we're excited to be doing now where we can actually start to look at from a physiological standpoint when someone comes back from warfare are they responding the way they did before warfare well i i i look at i mean i you know i've talked about this i i I, several years ago tried to get darpa interested in the whole idea of vacation science you know, you, everyone understands they have scientifically designed preparation, quantitative, all kinds of analytics as to how you prepare for war and how you prepare for an athletic event. But no one has done scientifically designed rest. What are your, your physiological rest goals? I mean, what should your resting heart rate be, your cholesterol level? Uh, I mean, uh, heart rate variability, yeah, yeah, heart rate variability, stress, yeah, all these things. Yeah. No one ever looks at the scientific design of vacation. And I guarantee you, that uh, if I went to Wall Street and said, hey, listen, let's scientifically design your vacation, uh, there'd be a lot of takers. Uh, any type of high-stress job where, hey, we're going to go someplace. And I've done a little bit of research. I've gone through the scientific literature on this kind of thing. There's not a whole lot out there. You can start to string pieces of it together, and you start to see some emergent trends. So if you want a good vacation, stay in your time zone and go someplace sunny. I mean, that's one of the main things. As soon as you start changing time zones, you're going to disrupt your sleep pattern. Also, there's three things. Stay in your time zone. Go where it's warm, and your vacation needs to be a minimum of 72 hours. And I think the upper limit is something like about five days. After five days, you don't see a whole lot of, of uh, recovery. Diminishing marginal returns. Yeah, yeah, correct. Well, my, biz- my business development team might get angry at me for rebelling this, so maybe we'll have to cut it. But we are working on an interesting project with literally a travel company to help analyze data on people who go to a certain uh, vacation spot. And it's smart, right? The vacation spot wants to be able to advertise that if you travel to their vacation, you know, destination, uh, this is the results. Like here, here's your your sleep baseline, and this is how much it's gone yeah, up. Sure. Your recovery stat, stats are rising. We're going to help you get some exercise. I mean, Makes a lot of sense, away, right? Throw away the cell phone, the TV, and the computer, and and just leave it to you and either some and and maybe you read a book. Um, and I think in many ways, and this won't go over so well, is um, family vacations can be stressful sometimes. Right. And one of the things might be is do you need a vacation away from your family? 
You need 96 <laughs> hours on a beach in the Keys, right? Without your cell phone, without your, um, without your uh, computer, without the te- television, without Bloomberg and the and the, and the, and the feeds Just, of the stuff. Yeah, drop off, the and grid. without your teenage kids. Right. You know, without your teenage kids, without your spouse or your partner, you know, um, it might just be that you got to focus on just you. And um, I think that that's one of the removing those stressors. But it's remarkable to me that no one has done a deep dive on the science behind vacation. When I proposed this at DARPA, no one wanted to have to defend this on the hill. Um, you know, hey, you're doing a project on vacation science. And then when I tried to bring it up down there at SOCOM, you know, the special operator community has really been just beat down after 17 years of war. Um, no one really wanted to do it there. But listen, there's we understand all the physiological metrics required to understand if you are truly rested. Not all of them, but we do, have a lot of them. So yeah, we and that's can, obviously we can, a big focus. We whoop. can give rest analytics uh, that go all the way down into your blood chemistry. I mean, you might be that you need certain sleep, you need certain diet, Um you might need uh, one of the big things. Obviously, what we've learned from Whoop is how alcohol can disrupt your sleep patterns. I mean, that's one of the one of the most, I think, important things that's come from some of the data that you guys have gathered. Um, that hey, go on the vacation, you hang out the beach, take a book, don't drink, eat salad, um, <laughs> get eat some fish, get some omega three fatty acids, go for a walk every day, and don't call your kids. Right. Don't let them call you. You know, it's a teenage it's controversial, can be stressful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's truth. To it, it is controversial, but yeah, families can be stressful. Families are complicated. You know, and just we see this a lot with professional athletes. Where we had a uh, a goalie in the NHL who was his statistics were by far the best in the NHL for away games, and you look at his performance at home, and it just wasn't as good at home games. And, you know, the team's trying to figure out what's going on, da-da-da. And our whoop point of view was just looking at the data, and it was like, well, this guy's, something's going so on. I know, I know of a story about an NHL player. Uh, he was not a goalie, uh, but this was made aware to me a few years back that he did a lot better on the road than he did at home. It's, but at home, he lived pretty close to, to, to the hockey rink. Um, but at home, they had a brand-new baby that wasn't sleeping through the nights. Right. So the only time he was getting any sleep was when he was at a hotel. And um, so these kinds of things can happen, and it's important to understand it. I mean, be I think, aware of it, right? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think First it's very step is awareness. I think it's very interesting that the Red Sox finally uh, put a sleep station over there in Fenway Park. There was an article about it recently in the Boston Globe. I saw that. Yeah. We're just down the street from Brigham Women's Hospital, one of the Harvard affiliated hospitals, where all this big work on sleep and wellness has been done. And I think actually you hired some of their people for yeah, we for did. your team. Yeah, and. Um, the Red Sox have now put a, and they just won the World Series last night, and they've put a sleep uh, station in there for their players. And a and lot of teams are doing this now. It's so important. I mean, like, you take a look at the beating that a professional athlete takes going up on planes, coming back down, sleep deprived. I mean, some of these guys are big guys. They're trying to sit into a, an airplane seat. You know, they're, they're traveling at different schedules. There'll be West Coast, there'll be East Coast. They'd be catching flights at 3 o'clock in the morning, flying someplace else, and then go up, getting checking into a hotel at 9 o'clock in the morning, got to get a few hours sleep, and then go to the ballpark for, for batting practice. I mean, it's an endurance event. Major League Baseball, uh, when you take a look at this schedule, it is an endurance event. Well, the travel piece of it, too, gets totally overlooked, you know? Yeah. And we've seen that in the WHOOP data as well, where 
when you're going over one hour, two hour, three hour time zones, it's messing with your body and your circadian rhythm. Yeah. And it affects your sleep and it affects your recovery. And the teams that actually invest on the data side of understanding that, I think are emerging as teams that are doing slightly better yeah. than their team's talent level. At the, at the end of the day, you still have to be a good team. You still have to have talented players. But you can maximize their potential so much more by understanding this stuff. Will, I'm going to tell you the next thing you need to start asking your athletes is when they fly on these planes, you need to ask them what was the airframe. Yeah, because the right. pressurization inside the aircraft is going to have an impact on how they feel when they land. That's fascinating, And that the actually. new trend yeah. in, in airline manufacturing is they're going to make these aircraft where they can maintain a higher atmosphere, the higher pressure inside the, the cabin so that people will feel better, more refreshed when they get to wherever they're going. So, so that's a good thing, you think? So yeah, so, oh, yeah, yeah. So one of the things I would correlate and make sure these teams know when they, when they sign these contracts with whatever airline they're doing is they should request a certain airframe. Um, but I would be willing to bet that you can find also a correlation, not just with their sleep pattern, but also the type of airframe and the atmospheric pressure inside that airframe while they were flying. You know, that's fascinating, and it actually ties to another project that we're working on with an airline where we're going to start um, monitoring pilots and stewardesses uh, to analyze how they're adapting to the travel schedule. Because, you know, that's a crazy schedule as well. Yeah, I mean, there's... Uh, you and know, the pilots, I, we've talked about pilots in the military, how much they need to be monitored. Yeah, I mean, crew rest, I mean, listen, I, I'm, a, I'm a soldier and I'm a business traveler, and... Crew rest are two of the most obscene words I ever hear because <laughs> they pull pilots off my plane when I'm delayed. I got uh, I got rotary wing aircraft that can't fly certain missions because they got to have crew rest. The whole idea of I mean I want to be able to call these pilots on this stuff. So Will, if you can give me data, give <laughs> me and a lot of business travelers and a lot of soldiers uh, a little bit more information in terms of how to fight for our rights. Uh, what we got to do with aircrews. No, you put air crews down, they, they can only work for so many hours in the 24-hour period or whatever it is, you know, I don't know where this military civilian. Um, the, the fact of the matter is that 25-year-old um, uh, pilot is probably a little bit different than that 55-year-old pilot. And uh, what are the numbers that support that? I mean, if you're flying, your crew rest requirements the same if you're flying domestic versus if you're flying uh, Trans-Pacific? Uh, probably not. So, um, uh Taking a look at those numbers and with some real data, I think is probably important. So one of the things that we've been working on together is just big picture. How can technology that WHOOP is developing help the military, help armed forces, help tactical yeah. athletes? If you think about just where all this is going, you know, paint a picture five, ten years from now. In your mind, what is like an optimal end-to-end monitoring program, uh, advisory service, you name it, where we can make our special forces as effective as possible. You know, we can make these people um, have healthier lives and perform optimally and, you know, do the right thing. That's the bottom line. I think special operators, but I also think that there's a big market for conventional forces. Yeah, excuse me. I I think I was mislabeling that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just mean across the board. I certainly understand it because the special operations committee has been so much more progressive when it comes to human performance. I mean, they're the first people you think of when the folks are just demanding more and more and more from, from themselves and from uh, the programs that they use to prepare themselves for their match. Yeah, talk big yeah. picture, tactical athlete. Yeah, so look, at, I mean, like, I can go through a unit's training records and I can see, okay, what are they doing in the shoot house? I mean, have they learned how to do this task, that task, this other task? 
I could take a look at their crude PT scores. Uh, this is today, or this today, is... today, okay, today, so... and, and I can make a very uninformed decision about the readiness of my unit. Um, but I don't know how comfortable they are in the, within those performance specs. I need a calibration on mind, body, and soul. Right. I need that, and I need to get as much data about these guys before I ask them to do some Herculean task, quite literally. <laughs> I mean, literally, yeah. I, I need to understand as much about where they are, not just their body, but where their head is. Um, I need to know what their stress levels are. I need, I need, I need to know if they're comfortable um, and, and, and how much uh, depth I've got in terms of that performance. And um, right now I don't have that. I need more physiological data for that. I think that's the opportunity for the technology there. I think that technology is going to continue to improve. That we'll have more and more data, more and more parameters, more and more analytics. I think at some point in time, you know, the data that you collect, you've got to have a theoretical framework to put it all in, in terms of the warfighter, the athlete, uh, the weekend warrior, whatever. Um, you've got to have some type of theoretical framework. I think the science is, is pushing hard to develop these models. Um, I see different, um, you know, we've always used these models trying to do drug discovery, computational models of organ performance. Um, it's very hard for us to start developing computational models of the tactical athlete. It's very challenging to do. And I, I don't see where there has been a major push to do that kind of thing. Um, I mean, the thing I'll say just from seeing this now with pro sports teams is you need uh, like a massive amount of buy-in to really be able to understand anything end-to-end. You know, because we're providing the physiological information so we can tell you whether someone's putting stress on their body or they're recovered or they're sleeping properly or not across those metrics. But what becomes really fascinating, and this is what we've been able to do at the professional sports level, is we're now able to pull in uh, travel schedule logs, when their flight took off, where it landed, what the uh, time difference was. We're able to look at the players by position, so knowing all the different positions of a, yeah. an individual on a baseball team or anything yeah. else. Yeah. We're able to know um, inf- uh, food information about their nutrition, yeah. right? We're able to know uh, exactly um, uh, what's going on uh, from a supplement standpoint or anything else. So y- you have all these extra data points and then, by the way, on the other side of it, you also have uh, performance outcomes, wins, yeah. losses, field yeah. goal percentage, batting average, you name it. And so you all of a sudden can connect the dots, right? I would say all of a sudden because that kind of modeling is actually very complicated. I mean, like you can eyeball it, and I'm sure that will – I mean, you've been looking at this yeah, kind yeah, of data yeah. for several years I now. I mean, connect all and, the dots is my yeah, way of saying you can start to tell a story. Right? Yeah, and yeah. You're right, and I think you're going you to go look, from blind to storytelling. No, I mean I think that that's why the, the company here has a kind of a unique perspective because you take a look across all of your different clients, you have a much broader understanding of human performance probably than other companies because of the very the varied number of people yeah, that that's you the have mission here, right? and the athletes. Right, I know that's why it's unique. So there's there's probably a whole science into going through the whoop data uh, archives and and starting to try to develop mathematical models of these kinds of things. I mean, I, I think there's a lot there to do with. I mean, like, uh, the question is, is, you know, how do you get the best team of modelers to come in? This is... Uh, this well, I is think a, the harder part, just if as it relates back to, to the military and the tactical athlete, is how do you get all that information end-to-end, right? Yeah. Like, we can... 
we can hire brilliant people out of Harvard, MIT, yeah. you name it. And we have. And that's why we've been able to start, again, telling a story. Yeah. I think in terms of the future on the military side, there has to be a pretty big buy-in to yeah. you know revealing a lot of different information and a lot of data sets that, by the way, might be a little spooky looking. You know, you might yeah. reveal some things that you're uncomfortable with. Data, data can be a little bit scary. I mean, the uh, NFL, you, for example, you know, they measure impact of every play, right? Every single hit. Yeah. There is a zebra monitor inside every player's pads that is literally measuring impact. Mm-hmm. Twenty, you know, twenty four seven of the game, and or for the entire game, and. That information's not public. Researchers aren't doing work with that data. Yeah, we've and had that be- military. We've had the military right, because we they don't, instrumenting you don't our want vehicles to know. for ID blasts. Yeah. So that's where I think I think there's potential, but there's also there's going to be an, uh, like a lift, so to speak. And it's maybe a political lift, but there needs to be a buy-in where everyone says, okay, we're going to pull, peel back the onion here. We're going to look at some stuff, and it's only going to be revealed to a small set of people. But that's, I think, how you can make a huge leap. But this is a DARPA hard project, and I think that you know, if you take it behind the the the, the curtain of, of of the classified early on, um, you're going to prevent some of the talent from coming in and working the data. You're going to have to accept a certain risk to bringing people in and taking a look at data and maybe revealing things you don't know because you you got to have a big tent strategy. These are not just multidisciplinary problems; these are transdisciplinary problems. Because you've got human behavior, you've got travel logistics, you've got sports, you got stuff. absolutely. I mean, you you want to say, hey, how many phone calls did this guy get from his wife? How many did he get from his parents that stressed Massive him? Massive data. I, I, I mean, is this guy dragging three or four of his high school buddies with him on every uh, every road trip? <laughs> I mean, are, are they sucking him dry because he, he you know they're putting he's putting them up at the Ritz? You know, what kind of financial duress are these guys? You, there's a lot of data now for the professional athlete. Their body is their asset. And, and but it goes beyond their body. Their lifestyle is their asset, and anything that's a part of their lifestyle is a part of this asset. It could be adaptive, or it could be maladaptive. And so, if I was a sports agent, um, I would want all this kind of data from Whoop, but I would also want so much more about the lifestyle of this athlete to understand. Hey, can I project what the career trajectory of this person is going to be? Is this person going to flame out in two years because of the way they party or, or right. the stressors they have in their family or from folks at home? Um, or does this person have the emotional resilience to get through you know, a, a season like what the Red Sox just went through? I mean, what, how, what kind of lunacy is that in Boston where you live under a microscope? I mean, if I was the Red Sox and I think about how much money we're spending to pay athletes to play baseball for other teams – uh, where they came here to Boston and they couldn't, you know, the, the, whatever reason, it, it, it was tough to it's tough to play baseball here in Boston. And, you know, uh, Fenway Park is Boston's cathedral. You live under a microscope there. There's absolutely no mercy. In a city like Boston, the one thing that Boston respects is toughness, and you got to earn it every single day in this city. That's one of my biggest adaptations to coming to this city. That potentiates a stress on these athletes that – can degrade and shorten their careers, certainly degrade their performance, shorten their careers. And um, all this data can be managed. Uh, it can be collected now. Uh, and the question is, is can it be synthesized into um, tools that the athlete can use to better manage their, their asset, their lifestyle, that the team can use to assess value 
on, on free agent signings that they want to do or draft picks that they want to have. And that has a sticky area in itself because it involves – it starts to involve the Players Association and the league and, you know, yeah. it varies, but we can spend a while talking about that. But uh, if you think big picture, you know, there's a lot right now being talked about with Russia and China and, you know, other global leaders – that, at least from my vantage point, seem to be really, really heavily investing in data. They seem to be heavily investing in their software capabilities. They're sure as hell hacking our shit, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, do you worry at all about the next 20, 50 years from the standpoint of, are we going to be able to keep up from an artificial intelligence standpoint when it comes to warfare? Um. Yeah, I mean, I see this in the scientific community. I mean, the quality of the science coming out of China is as good as it's ever... It's never been this good. As it, it seems now. good. It's extremely good. Yeah. We've trained a lot of the scientists over there. They're going back and they're building great universities. Right. There's great scientists. If this gets turned to, in directions that are probably, you know, without the same type of you know, values compass that we try to use for our science development here in the U.S., um, we could face some challenges. And it's starting to look like we're going to face some there in the Pacific Rim. Um, you know, very concerned about what Putin's doing. I mean, like, I mean, this is uh, the Russians, Putin. There's, there's, uh, there's a lot of violence that's, that's been potentiated by, by by Putin, and Russian nationalism is as high as it's ever been. So, um, at least since the fall of the Soviet Union. So, um, uh, yeah, I do worry about those things. I worry about them quite a bit. I think data security is something that everyone needs to be concerned about, and um, you know. So all of these stakeholders, the Players Association, you know, the, the, the unions, uh, the agents, the athletes, certainly, the, uh, the teams, um, uh, the, the U.S. military, has to be aware of the fact that there's a risk when you start collecting all this data. Now, you might collect data and you might have your own models to this. Uh, you know, your, the St. Louis Cardinals might have a set of models where they had the Boston Red Sox data where they would come up with something very different. You know, one of the really interesting things in government is I think the only government employees who get a quantitative um, um, review of their job performance in any given year are the meteorologists at the National Weather Service because they all have their own mathematical models and they get a quantitative grade as to how well they did at predicting the weather, right? Because right. all their mathematical models are different, right? So every team's models might be somewhat different because they make different assumptions. They have different conditions under which they model this data. So with the same data set, you could get, you know, five or six. If you have five or six mathematical models, you could have five or six different predictions. So yeah, it's not that. just about protecting the data. It's about understanding your model and understanding other people's models and how they're going to process that data. And, yeah, and you're, you're, you're thinking about the question from a very – you know, almost whoop-centric point of view, which is like physiological-based. I'm, I'm even saying, broadly speaking, you know, I was reading this article, and I will include this in the show notes because it's crazy, and maybe you saw it. By like 2022, China is going to have a program where they're monitoring everything about their citizens and creating effectively a reputation score based on everything that a citizen does in his or her life. If you go through a traffic light, that deducts it. If you help an older lady walk across the street, that increases yeah. it. If you tweet positive things about the government, that increases it. If you say yeah. bad things about the government, that decreases it. 
um, you know, I'm sure it's reading emails and all these other things, right? And it's, I mean, uh, I mean it's beyond a Black Mirror episode. It's like this is full on. Uh, you know, the invasion of privacy is probably not even right the way it lands. But, but you know, ulti- ultimately, that will be to the demise of their civilization because they will homogenize the population to the point where there's no creative friction. Um, that that will basically disintegrate any type of creativity because you, you basically develop a, a mindset of uh, defect-free. You have to live defect-free or something might happen to you. A, a huge fear of failure. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Or it, 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 not even failure, just variation from the norm. And um, I mean, I think that I, several years ago I got contacted by the New York Times about this big study they were doing on AI. And I don't think they ever ran the story, but like they did this interview, and they asked me. They said, "Do you think that AI will ever outdesign humans?" And I said, with great confidence, "No, I don't think they they they, they it will." And they said, "Why not?" And I can't remember what the answer was, but I'm going to give you an even more clever answer than okay, I would have given yeah. them. And that is that an important, but to the left of innovation is creativity, and if you want to be an innovator, which is very much a team sport. Um, you have to first be a creative individual. Now, there's a big difference between being a good idea fairy and an innovator, and that's usually leadership that moves the needle. Execution, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But um, in, in the sanitized work environments we have where no one wants to get their feelings hurt and everyone wants to be valued and all these psychological safe spaces, we sanitize the workplace of the kind of emotion that drives creativity. And I don't care um, what type of AI system you have. No one will come up, will so, develop an AI system that has both the serendipity, the situational awareness, and the emotional response that humans have to the things that they observe quite accidentally and connecting these dots that drives that whole innovation process. And AI won't do that. AI will do what I tell it to do. Maybe it might eventually develop some autonomy, but it won't, it won't, feel, observe, and in the same way, and, and, and experience serendipity in the same way that I do in my, in my daily life. So I think that's important. But it breaks my heart to think that the Chinese might collect that kind of data on their citizens um, because it's just... Well, that's it, happening. I mean, know, that, that's, uh, that's they, they even announced it. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, I'll send you the article. I mean, yeah, that's, I mean, like, the, imagine the amount of talent that they're putting into a program like that it could be better spent doing something else. I mean, that's a tremendous waste of talent to do this stuff. And it, it, the end result is you're a homogenize your population. Right. I want to do a couple, uh, you know, quick fire questions and then I'll let you get out of here. Um, one is, you know, you, you travel a lot, right? Yeah. And you've also been super experienced with how to think about your body and your health and your mind. Yeah. Do you have any tricks, techniques, life hacks that you use to make yourself optimal? It's kind of a whoop-centric question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, travel sucks. As I'm getting <laughs> old, as I it's get good older, feedback, too. It sucks. I mean, look at I mean, like, you can give me extended leg room. You can put me first class. Uh, I'm 6'6". Six, six. I'm a big dude, right? And it, it sucks, right? So what I've learned is you know, when I go to get on a plane, I don't eat. Uh, the last thing I wanted to eat is the airplane food and degrade my sleep on a red eye, you know. Uh, I try not to eat before I get on there, wait until I get to wherever I'm going. When I get there, going, if i gotta, if I got to perform, give a talk or do whatever, 
You don't uh, drink alcohol, which is a good start. Yeah, I don't drink alcohol. That's a big thing. Yeah, that's yeah, a big I, leg up because yeah, a lot I, of people drink. Yeah, try not travel. to eat on the airplane. Try not to eat on the airplane. Try not to eat. Maybe even before I get on. That's the actually one of the too. best things I've done recently. Stop eating on planes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think the food's that great. And then also, I, I, if I'm going to sleep, I want to sleep. Your body doesn't metabolize it properly either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the thing is, it's like you go up there. I'm always concerned about what's the oxygen levels in here. You know, I mean, like, am I is my gut epithelium hypoxic? Why does salt you know, taste so good? Fast? Yeah. What is this stuff sitting in my <laughs> belly the whole time? You know, I don't feel healthy. I can't really move around. I'm on these life long flights, but. You know, I, I don't drink. I've never drank, so that's like a big deal in terms of like not feeling. But I like to when I go to a city, I either like to jog or walk the whole city to kind of do my exploring, try not to do taxis and stuff like that. But you know, like I don't take ambience and things like that. I mean, I take a melatonin if I got sleep. You know, I take melatonin. Yeah, if I have to deal with a time zone that I'm adapting to. Well, I think I think listen. I think what you want to do is you want to try to exercise before and after you get off the plane. Totally agree. Uh, even if it's just walking up and down the terminal. Yeah. Uh, I think you want to minimize what you consume on the plane. And uh, you you really gotta like try to relax while you're on the plane. I mean, a lot of times, I mean, if I find a red eye in somewhere, the first thing I want to do is like, I listen. I'm, I'm I, you know, I I really try to minimize my travel because of my uh, my daughter, right? So like, I do 36 hour trips everywhere. Like, I'm flying to Zurich. I'm there 36 hours on the ground. Boom! I'm fl- I'm coming back, right? So that means I get off the red eye. I gotta perform. I gotta take a shower at the airport. Get changed. You, you drink know? coffee? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because you say that you, the, you say that with a nod that makes me think. Yeah, because that's coffee. that's why you're all safe. It's because I drink <laughs> coffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I drink coffee. I mean, like, but I only drink coffee in the morning. Uh, I don't drink it. So you don't guzzle it all day. I've been drinking that coffee in the in the afternoons because of this. Degum Red Sox uh, World Series thing. Right, month that, of October is the only time. By the way, we're about to publish something on sleep in Boston versus yeah. the rest of the country. No, listen, let me tell you something. Every October, like this whole city just grinds to a halt. We get nothing done because <laughs> first of all, we're up late watching these Red Sox games, and then we're spending the whole next day raging about decisions that were made and, and listening to WEEI and all the talk, the sports talk radio. But yeah, October is the only time of year where I drink coffee. Um, after about 11 o'clock in the morning. And I don't drink that much. Maybe I have a, might have a cup, a cup or two in the morning. But I get up pretty early. I mean, I, I'm up at 4 or 5 to start getting some work done and try to get a little bit of work done before I take my daughter to school. So, um, yeah, I, I, I limit it. 4 or 5 is early. What time do you go to bed? Well, you know, if I'm putting her down between 8 and 9, you know, I might be going to bed shortly thereafter. And so man, this I'm, Red Sox series screwed you up? Uh, it jacked me all up. Yeah. Listen, last night was tough. And by the time... The game I lived over. in Fenway, man. It was chaos here. Yeah, listen, I overlooked Fenway. I, I mean, I, I lived down there in the Cambridge Watertown line looking down over yeah. this thing. So, you know, last night after we won, I was so amped, you know, I decided to clean the kitchen and I didn't want to go to the cooking <laughs> and stuff like this. So I'm like trying to scrub the new ceramic uh, stovetop because uh, I just couldn't calm down. I was so fired up for these guys. I mean, they just busted their hump. So, yeah, you know, I, 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 I minimize the caffeine, but like, you know, the fact of the matter is, is I don't do a whole lot of lifestyle changes other than just minimizing the amount of carbs I eat when I'm traveling too. You know, I want to eat light meals, and meat and vegetables, and but you, you just got to exercise, and that's the hard thing about it. Because when I do it at 36 hours on the ground in Zurich or someplace or Seoul, you know, or I mean, I used to do these nasty trips to Singapore. I was there less than 48 hours, and you know, that's like a even when they had the nonstop 18 hour from Newark, it was still brutal travel. Um, you just like you, you have all kinds of challenges with like digesting food. So 
your food intake is so important when you're traveling. You just got to be very careful. And part of the traveling, the fun is the culture. You know, you want to be able to eat while you're there because the food is culture, right? That's how you build totally. friendships and relationships, these social rituals we have around meals. So the last thing I want to do is burn, eat these wasted calories on a on a on an aircraft flight. You know, I want to like eat the local stuff, but uh, even then, that can be toxic. If I've had some meals in some crazy places, got on a plane and. Realize I've made you know a serious tactical uh, mistake. All right, next next question for you: uh, Who is the most creative person that you've met? You've talked a lot about creativity. Oh, it's um, it's Kanye, no doubt about and that. And what what stood out? Although, although I think that Larry is probably a, a pretty creative person. I would say that my thesis advisor, John Wixlow of Vanderbilt, was was an extremely creative person. It is extremely creative, uh, but yeah, I would uh, all of them. And what stood out for you about Kanye's creativity? I mean, it's 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 transdisciplinary. I mean, the guy's doing fashion, the guy's doing music. I mean, he's hiring engineers. So you can relate to that project. Yeah, I mean, like I'm not working at the scale of Kanye, you know. But I mean, um, you know, we're trying to trim the edges off some problems. I mean, he's uh, spent a lot of resources pursuing some of these ideas and. Um, the great thing about listening to him describe stuff is he wasn't afraid if it crashed and burned. And I mean, look at if you want to be out there at the cutting edge in any field, it takes some balls. It really does. I mean, figuratively. I mean, you've got to get used to being shamed, to people making fun of you, to being wrong, risking everything. Being at the cutting edge in any field is about embracing a chronic discomfort. You've got to, to, so to true. have that. It's you've so got true. to have a competitiveness that you want. You got to have a will to win, to persevere, because it's it's gonna suck. If you're afraid of being wrong, you're never gonna be an innovator. You are not. I think it's also why you know the most creative people are also at times paired with depression, you know, or or you're cycling between yeah. this sort of bipolar feeling of euphoria and just being really down. Because yeah. the nature of pushing through anything that's super creative or cutting edge that people tell you is wrong is that your your mind's constantly oscillating between these two feelings of I've got it right and I'm crazy. I completely agree. I completely agree. I mean, like it's, you know, you hear about the artist or the scientist or the surgeon who's like yelling and throwing things in the OR or the conductor. Giving birth to an idea is very violent. I mean, you totally. can take a look at a, uh, the birth of a new idea as intellectual violence. Ideas coming together, smashed together, boom. And giving birth to, you know, birth in an idea is really brutal. Now, a lot of times the ideas are not completely formed. You're trying to communicate them. You're trying to get them out of your head. They're really tough. We don't really have appreciation for that process in a lot of companies these days. I mean, we sanitize these things because we don't want anyone to have their hurt, feelings hurt. I don't know of anyone who's doing anything creative who doesn't get their feelings hurt. I don't know of anyone who ventures into that space of the unknown, going where there's nothing and making something that doesn't get their feelings hurt sometimes. You just got to, like, build some resilience and endure that. But so, I mean, I think one of the things that struck me about some of these people that I've engaged with is they were not afraid to fail. And that is, uh, it's it's awesome to see that. I mean, like, you know, I mean, like, my risk tolerance probably went up because I used to get shot at for a living, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I'm just not afraid in right? the lab. I mean, like, uh, but maintain. I don't think there's ser- too much serendipity when it comes to discovery. 
what I, I don't call it serendipity. I call it situational awareness, and that's a leadership trait. That's an innovator trait, hey, and, uh, and it's a trait of a winner. Hey, uh, I'm going to find a way to make this thing work. I'm going to find a way to win. I'm going to find a way to prevail. Athletes do this. Good coaches do this. Good scientists do this. Good artists do this kind of thing. And so putting yourself in a situation where you're, you're bordering on complete collapse and trying to find a way to pull out a victory. Um, it's like Cora the other night going to 18 innings. I mean, like, I think everyone in a city like Boston, one of the most creative places in the world where you've got to earn your toughness every day, where you've got to create things, where we have academics, we have artists, we have performers, we have athletes. And in Boston, everyone understands going all out. We are all in. That's right. what this city is about. Cora uh, was, was throwing Evaldi in there for six innings in relief, his, his starting pitcher for the next night. Hey, baby, you might not like that anywhere else in, in the world, but in Boston, baby, that's what that's the way this city rolls. I love that. All sure. in, all the time. Belichick, no days off. That's what it takes to achieve. Uh, that's what it takes to be creative. And I'm uh, very honored to be a part of this, this city and that culture, or trying to be a part of it, trying to be a, a contributor to that. And... Um, so when I when I see these people that just aren't afraid uh, to, to to make a mistake, they will go all out. Like um, you know, was Elon or Kanye or some of these other people I've seen do this kind of thing. I, I'm 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 down with that. I, I think that's I'm trying to be a part of that effort. Well, look, thank you for everything that you've uh, you've done for this town, and I'm sure all the Harvard students that you've influenced positively. You've certainly had a great influence on my life, and. Uh, and the way you've approached, I think, leadership and creativity for WHOOP has been amazing. Yeah, well, thanks. So Appreciate thank, that. Yeah, That'd thank be a you part for being team. so engaged. Yeah. And uh, if people want to find you, how can people, you know, reach out to you? I'm sure a lot of people are just Google treat, me. Just Google. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm all over the place. You'll be able to find me. I'm over at Harvard. Okay. Yeah, or contact well, we a barbecue can, company. We can leave uh, your email or something in the show notes sure. if people are comfortable sure. with that. Uh, but anyway, this has been awesome, Kit. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. My pleasure. Thanks, Will. And you've had a world of experience, so thank you. Thank you for listening to our second episode of the Whoop Podcast. I thought Kit would be an amazing guest, and of course he came through. You can start to get a feel for the type of guests we're having on, super dynamic people with really wide-ranging points of view across all things sports, data, analytics, you name it. Uh, you can visit whoop.com slash thelocker for show notes and for links to the relevant topics of what we talked about. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Whoop podcast on iTunes, Google, Spotify, uh, or wherever across the internet that this podcast exists. You can find me online at Will Ahmed. I'd love to answer any questions that you have about this podcast or listen to your suggestions regarding Whoop, questions about Whoop, you name it, that's at Will Ahmed. Uh, We'd also love to hear your feedback generally, so check out at Whoop on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Email thelocker at whoop.com with any thoughts or ideas uh, you may have. You can join the Whoop community for $30 a month and get 24-7 access on your biometric data as well as analytics across strain, sleep, recovery, and more. The membership comes with a free Whoopstrap 2.0. Our members include some of the best performance on the planet. I've been so grateful to see the growth on the consumer side. And so to all of you loyal members out there, uh, we love you. Thank you for listening. And uh, we wouldn't be here without you. Uh, we got some great holiday promotions. Uh, we're now offering an annual membership where you can get 20% off the regular monthly rate. That's a great deal. 
And for our current members, visit our new holiday shop at whoop.com. We've got gift cards to extend your membership at a discounted rate, premium gold and silver clasps. We've got an amazing feedback on those, gold and silver clasps, uh, seasonal bands, and a lot more. So if you're looking for some bling or you want an ugly sweater band for your ugly sweater office party, yes, check out the holiday shop at whoop.com. That's all I've got for you folks. Thanks again for listening to the Whoop podcast. We'll have another episode for you next week.